the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Christians will do good works because they are saved. Okay? If you're taking notes, you can write it down this way. Works are not necessary to be saved. They are evidence that you are saved. The point that James was making in this is that a mature Christian will put faith into action. Another way of saying this is that faith is what you believe and it proves itself by how you behave. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through James. You can be saved and not do good works, but why would you? Jesus, the perfect Son of God, became flesh and walked this earth confronting the pain and suffering of mankind to the extreme of dying a gruesome death on the cross. And He did it for you. Why wouldn't you want to live a life that glorifies Him and honors His commands? As Pastor Gary will remind us in today's message, though your works don't save you, they are a natural outcome of experiencing true salvation. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of James, chapter 2, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. For he who said, this is for he being God, who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So let's park it there just at verses 10 and 11 for a moment. For you note takers, James is warning here by the Holy Spirit against two things, selective obedience and relative innocence. In other words, when we see here how he writes about how um, we are to understand that the same one who wrote, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder, he's describing here selective obedience. God calls us to obey all of his commandments. We don't get to pick and choose which ones we like and which ones we don't. Now, granted, some commandments go down easier, like ice cream. And other commandments are like Brussels sprouts. You know, and you gotta, you gotta cook it up good, put a lot of butter and salt on it to even make it halfway tasty. I'm just not a Brussels sprout guy. Maybe some of you are. I'm just not. I'm more of an ice cream guy. 
You know, if somebody offers me, you want Brussels sprouts or you want ice cream, I'm going to choose ice cream every single time. And that's the way sometimes the Bible is. Sometimes it goes down, oh, this is sweet. Oh, this is smooth. And other times you're like, but it's good for you, you know? And so we can't be selective about God's word. Sure, there are going to be some verses and some commandments that are easier for you to obey than others. And then there are others that are more challenging to us. But it's all good, and we can't practice selective obedience. I like some of these verses. I don't like others. The ones I like, I'm going to obey. The ones I don't like, I'm not going to obey. Listen, the Bible's like going to Costco, all right? If you go to Costco and you're like, I only want one can of tuna, it ain't going to work. You're going to get 35 cans of tuna, whether you like it or not. And you just can't go and be selective and say, well, out of the 35, I'm just going to pull out one little can. I'm going to go pay for it at the, at the, at the register. It doesn't work like that. You, it's a package deal. You, if you want tuna, you're going to get 35 cans of tuna. All right? That's the way the Bible is. It's not like I'm going to pull one little verse out because I like that. That's all I want. I just want the one. It's a package deal. So you've you got you to accept all of it. And this is what James is warning here against. And then the other thing he's warning against there is relative innocence. Because he, he's basically reminding us that we can't use the argument, well, you know, I might, uh, I might fool around on my spouse every once in a while, but at least I haven't killed anybody. You know, and then think, I'm good to go. You know, I might, I might cheat every once in a while, but I'm not a murderer. And so I got something going for me. But that, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. You know, let's say that you are an accountant at a, at a big Fortune 500 company, all right? And your boss says to you, I want you to transfer $100 million to this other account. And you transfer $99 million and you keep a mill for yourself, okay? Your boss is not going to commend you. Say, well, that was really decent of you. You, you kept 99%. Uh, uh, of what I told you to do, you were faithful with 99%, all right? That 1% that you dishonored your boss and kept that one mil for yourself, that's what's going to land you in jail. So your boss is not impressed with the fact that you were 99% obedient and 1% disobedient. The 1% is what you're going to be judged for. That's the way it is here. We, we can't just claim relative innocence because, you know, I'm keeping 99% of the law. This is why he says there in verse uh, 10, for whoever stumbles at one point of the law is guilty of breaking it all. So again, it's, it's a total package here. And we, we can't claim that we're basically innocent people because we've kept 99%. Uh, you know, this, he's setting up the basis here for why we need a savior. You see this, right? Because every single one of us is a lawbreaker. Even if you've just broken one commandment, you're guilty of breaking it all. All right? There's no such thing as a partially righteous person. <laughs> you're either all in or you're not. And when you realize that, man, I'm a lawbreaker, even if you've broken just, you know, one commandment, uh, it, it highlights the fact that in ourselves we don't have it within us to be perfectly obedient to every aspect of the commandments, and thus we need a Savior. And so we, we can't claim selective obedience, and we can't claim relative innocence. And he says in, in verse 12, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now I like the way that James phrases that, the law 
of liberty because it is both. We are under liberty, under grace. As New Testament Christians, we live under grace, so we have liberty. But we are still bound to the moral code of the law. For those of you who don't understand, let me just break down for, for, for us. The Old Testament law, which God gave to us, basically breaks down into three categories. The ceremonial, dietary, and moral aspects of the law. Some of the Old Testament scriptures had to do with the ceremonial stuff. Uh, what to wear, uh, certain feasts to, to observe, um, certain ritual practices of purification. So those were ceremonial. Then there were dietary aspects of the law. Sometimes you read your Old Testament, it talks about you know, not eating shrimp, not eating you know, uh, uh, things that are what, what they call um, bottom feeders on the bottom of the sea, like so shellfish, right? All this kind of stuff, crab, offlet, pork, off limits, all these dietary things, ceremonial laws, dietary laws, and then there's the moral code. Okay, now, good news, Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17 says, let us not judge one another in regards to food or drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of the things to come. Okay, Paul was writing about Old Testament laws in those categories of ceremonial or dietary aspects. He says, but they have been fulfilled in Christ. Okay, and so Jesus comes along in Mark 7, 19, and he declared all foods clean. And he says in Mark 7, 19, for it's not what goes into a man that makes a man unclean, but it's what comes out of the heart. So the heart is the sinful issue. And so the dietary and ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law have been fulfilled in Christ, we're no longer bound to the ceremonial or dietary aspect. Now, some of those things might be good for you if you still want to say, well, I, don't, I don't think I want to eat pork and I don't want to eat shrimp and crab. Okay, maybe that's good for you, so you don't have to, but don't feel like you have to observe those as a way of you know, being a better Christian. When Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark chapter 7, 19, I'm all in for shrimp and crab. <laughs> Pulled pork barbecue, praise God. All right. You know, every time I go to Israel, this is like my 15th trip this last week about the third day, even though I'm not much of a bacon guy, when it's not there at all, I'm like craving bacon. I'm like having a bacon attack, like three days into the trip. Like, but there isn't, you're not going to find any bacon. You're not going to find any sausage. I'm so glad to come back to America. I have some freedom with this. (laughs) Everything's better wrapped in bacon. I'm just telling you. Even when you fry bacon, it sounds like applause. (laughs) You know, anyway, it's true. But the moral code of the law is still intact. The moral code of the law is still intact. And so James is saying how you speak and what you do should still be governed by the moral code of the law. That Christ is the fulfillment of the law, but in him is a righteous standard. He's not replaced the moral code. He is the moral code. He's fulfilled the ceremonial and dietary aspects, which were pointing to Christ, but we're still bound by the law of liberty. So even though we're under grace, we still have a moral code to observe. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a hard verse. So uh, from different commentaries, I'm going to give you two possibilities of interpretation on this verse. Uh, Some scholars say it basically means that God exalts mercy over judgment. It it can mean both of these, or it can mean either of these. 
Verse 13 can mean that God exalts mercy over judgment, which is a good thing. Uh, I, I want his mercy every day, not so much as judgment, right? So we want mercy. It can also mean a statement related to our disposition concerning these things, that a merciful man rejoices over opportunities to show mercy more than in acting according to strict justice. So take your pick. It probably means one of those or maybe a little bit of both. And then we come here to verses 14 through the end of the chapter, verse 14 through 26. And this is where we come to the second great theme of James chapter 2. The first is don't show favoritism. The second is do put faith into action. Let me read verses 14 through 26, and then we'll come back up and, and dig it out. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warned and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith, without, that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. By the way, that's a phrase he uses three times in that section there. Faith without works is dead. The year was 1517. And a Roman uh, Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther took issue with his own church's policy on the topic of justification. At issue for Martin Luther was whether or not a person was justified by faith alone or justified by faith and good works. His church, the Roman Catholic Church, taught and still does today that it's the latter. Justification is by faith and works. But Luther began reading his Bible. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, for example, says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And he also read Galatians 3.11. No one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Many other passages like this, as Luther was reading through his New Testament, and thus he rejected the doctrine of justification by works. He took issue with other doctrines as well, and he compiled them in a long list of 95 points called 90, the 95 Theses, 
that on October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther enumerated on a piece of scroll and then nailed that scroll to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. For doing that, he was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. He was defrocked, and Protestantism began because Luther took issue with the idea of justification by works. He understood, as Scripture teaches, that justification is by faith alone. And because one of his main objections with the Roman Catholic Church was their combination of faith and works, when Luther read the epistle of James, he had trouble with it. And he called it the epistle of straw. Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. He thought James was placing too much emphasis on the idea of works, this passage that we just read here, the end of chapter 2. He thought that James was saying that good works was a condition of salvation, but that's not what James was saying. Martin Luther interpreted the epistle of James incorrectly. That's not my opinion. That's the opinion of every Bible scholar since. What James was saying here and how Martin Luther misread the book of James James was not saying that you had to do good works in order to be saved. James was saying that true Christians will do good works because they are saved. Okay? If you're taking notes, you can write it down this way. Works are not necessary to be saved. They are evidence that you are saved. The point that James was making in this is that a mature Christian will put faith into action. Another way of saying this is that faith is what you believe, and it proves itself by how you behave. That's why he writes here about this inextricable connection between faith and works, because if you truly are saved based on what you believe, it will prove itself by the way that you behave. And if you take away behavior from the belief system then you are left simply with a faith based on belief that has no evidence in action, which is why he points out here about demons. Because he says if it was only about belief, then the demon should be commended here. He says in verse 19, you believe that there is one God. Great. And he's commending, by the way, the great Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Jews today in a synagogue will quote Deuteronomy 6, 4. The great Shema. Shema means to hear. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jews today in a synagogue will stand up as Shema Israel. Adonai Eloanu, Adonai Echad. The Lord our God is one. To hear. Hear, O Israel. God is one. James says, you believe God is one? Great. Good for you. But he says, by the way, the demons believe that. And they tremble. Did you know that demons actually believe right doctrine? The Bible teaches a few things about demons. And it, and it says that demons believe in the existence of God. The Bible says they believe in the deity of Christ. Because they always bore witness to his sonship, Mark chapter 3. They believe in the place of punishment, Luke chapter 8. They believe in Jesus' as judge, Mark chapter 5. The, what distinguishes demons from believers is that believers put their faith into action. Demons don't. They have a belief system. They have right doctrine, but they have no action to prove their belief system. 
because they're in disobedience and rebellion to God. So what James is saying here is that the true Christian not only has a belief system, but also testifies to that belief system through the way he or she behaves. And therefore, works and faith are inextricably linked. Works don't save you, they're just proof that you are saved. See, they they don't cause you to become in, in, in a place of greater favor with God. They just demonstrate that you already have His favor and that you are born again by faith. If you have a relationship with God, then your actions should show it. Belief alone is what demons have. And they even engage in their emotions because he says they believe and they tremble. But as Christians, we need to understand the relationship between faith and works. Works don't save you. They just show that you are saved. And James gives two examples here of two different people. Abraham in verse 21, Rahab in verse 25. He uses these two as examples. He says, listen, look at Abraham. Abraham believed God, but he didn't just sit back and say, well, I believe God. He put his faith into action. When God says, by testing Abraham, I want you to offer your son Isaac on an altar. I want you to offer him to me. Abraham went through with it right up into the point where he actually drove the the knife into Isaac's chest. And then God showed up and said, okay, Abraham, you now have proven your faith to me. And God provided uh, a lamb as a sacrifice instead of Isaac. That's all beautiful typology too, by the way, of Christ and the sacrifice. And, but the point is that James says, look at Abraham. Abraham just didn't sit back and say, I believe, I believe, I believe. He put his faith into action. He said, also Rahab. Rahab is this harlot. She's a prostitute living in Jericho. The Jews send spies into Jericho. She takes the spies in. She commends the God of the spies. She's a Gentile, a prostitute, but yet she talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to these Jewish spies, gives them shelter, says to them, when you come back, will you remember me? They say, we'll tie this red scarlet ribbon around the door of your home and your home will be protected. We'll come back and we'll get you. She didn't say, well, I just believe, I believe, I believe. She followed up with action. She tied that scarlet cord on the, on the window of her home. Again, another picture of Christ. And her action proved. But she demonstrated by what she did what she believed. This is what James is saying for Christians. We need to be people who demonstrate our faith by the way we live. We need to be people who not just have a belief system, but the way we behave is consistent with what we believe. The way we talk, the way we live our lives is evidence of our faith. Anybody can go around saying, I believe, I believe, I believe. But it is the way you live. It is your action. It is the way you speak and the way you conduct yourself that is the real evidence for what you believe in your heart. And so while works don't save a person, they're the testimony, they are the evidence, they are the proof that what we believe and who we've trusted as our Savior, Jesus, is real, it's genuine, it's legitimate. By your fruits, you will be known. By the way you live, it will testify that you are, in fact, born again. And he ends this chapter by saying, for as the body without the spirit is dead. You know, once the spirit leaves the body, the body is dead. He says those two things have to be together for there to be a living body. So faith without works is dead also. So may the Lord continue to challenge us. It's not just what you believe, 
It's how you behave as the evidence that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Works don't save us. Works are evidence that we are saved. Amen? Following Jesus isn't a one-time decision. It's a daily choice to put your desires aside and seek your Savior for His opinion. It's determining that your actions are going to reflect what you believe today. It's every morning giving your heart back to God because it can't be about you. The book of James is helpful in that it gives you practical advice on how to do this every day, how to be the hands and feet of Jesus to everyone you meet. We're so glad you took time today to study this New Testament letter with us. If you missed any part of this broadcast or would like to explore more of Pastor Gary's teachings, we invite you to visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also download our mobile app to connect with Scripture whenever and wherever you are. How could we be lifting you up in prayer during this study? Please let us know. We love that we can interact with our listeners, and we feel honored to be able to pray for your requests. Give us a call at 703-771-1500. Again, our number is 703-771-1500. We'd love to have you come join us for our weekly gatherings at Cornerstone Chapel. You'll find all the information you need on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go but still you know, but still you know, you're not alone.